I knew that the growth potential or the value proposition of what I was doing was limited. So I could chug away at this and pay my bills, or I could step back and take risk and go for something that had more of a long-term value proposition. The road of an entrepreneur is guaranteed to be askew, and there are always big questions to overcome. How are tech founders bootstrapping their way to the top while spending money from their own pockets? How do they scale a startup that is primed for a successful exit, yet still remain profitable? These are the types of questions that this podcast will help answer, and it will shine light onto the livelihood of entrepreneurs, the good, the bad, the ugly, and the dirt in between. My name is Jim Barnish, and welcome to the dirt. Our guest today joins us from the local Bay Area. As a serial entrepreneur and CEO across a range of industries, he's been through the trenches growing company after company. Today, he's here to drop some knowledge on revenue operations, from bringing in a chief revenue officer to dealing with creditors and investors when you aren't hitting the numbers. We'll even touch on how to leverage direct mail as part of your go-to-market strategy to see ultimate success. Brad Kugler, welcome to The Dirt. Thanks, Jim. I'm really happy to be here. I love talking business. Uh, after you've accumulated some, what, 30 years of business and entrepreneurial experience, what, what else can you do but give back and share? So I'm happy to talk about my long road. My success has not been linear per se, but more like one of these. And I wouldn't even necessarily call myself a raving success at this point, but still a learner, you know? Yeah. So let's talk about some of that journey because you've built three, four companies at this point. I could say three and a half, but yeah, yeah. And the, the half was sort of like I built it, but kind of abandoned ship halfway for, for another opportunity. So it was going well, but I saw bigger things. So dumped yeah. it. So let's start at, let's start at the beginning. Talk to me about starting your first company and how you've grown that. So this takes me back to all the way to the early nineties. I had jumped ship from. University of San Diego to take over a fledgling business. My father was leaving. It was it was selling opening VHS inventories to new blockbuster franchises. He had jumped into it. And then a few months later, the recession hit, the business was failing, and he wanted to go back to selling insurance. So I'm like, oh, okay, I'll give it a shot. I can only be a hero. If it falls apart, well, it's not my fault. And if I if it goes well, it's my success. So Ended up running that business and growing it from about a million dollars all the way up to $25 million uh, from 1991 to 2016. Obviously, I was disrupted by format change, meaning, you know, well, it shifted from VHS to DVD. That was great. It was a boon for the business. In fact, anytime there was a recession, cheap entertainment does well. People don't go to the movies. They stay home and watch videos. So if the economy was doing poorly, I knew that I was going to do better. And it worked for two out of the last three recessions I was in it. But when Netflix and Amazon and all those came along with their streaming business, I, I couldn't compete. There was just no way. I had tried to raise money and to kind of go into the streaming world, but you needed literally hundreds of millions of dollars. I couldn't, I couldn't, that was not my... It wasn't going to happen. So I started shifting into retail. And at that point, this is where one of the most difficult times in business comes along. And you had mentioned it being interesting in our pre-show. 
is we had a, you know, a two and a half million dollar line of credit from Merrill Lynch to finance the purchases of inventories. And they called up and they basically said, hey, listen, we don't think that the media business is, is an industry we want to be in. We're going to call your line. You got 60 days to come up with the $2.5 million. And I looked at my brother, my dad, my other brother have already left the business at this point because they found other things. And I said, well, what do you want to do? We ended up getting on a plane, flying to Chicago. And I said, listen, here's the keys to my house, my car, my business. If you're going to make me come up with $2.5 million in 60 days, I'm out. I'll, I'll take it all. I'm, I'm start over. I got them to basically give me 120 days. Hmm. And I'm like, whatever. So put on my suit, went bank to bank. I went to, I literally went to 14 different banks in the Tampa Bay area. Oh, actually it was nationwide. 13 banks turned me down. In fact, one guy came and sat with me and I showed him the financials. I showed him my plan and he's like, listen, I've got a number that you need to call. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, you got someone who's going to loan me the money? Was a bankruptcy attorney. He's like, this is your only chance. I'm sorry. It's over. Pack your bags. You know, damage control. You're finished. And I was like, oh my gosh. You know, so as it turns out, there was a bank that did give us a loan. And it was, uh, you know, it was complicated process. And unfortunately, in the meantime, while we were transitioning to this new loan, I was taking every bit of available cash and paying off Merrill Lynch because they're threatening and they're getting antsy and they didn't want to wait for this loan that may or may not come through. So they were, they were really riding us to pay this thing off. But after we got this new loan, I paid them off. Of course, there was only a little money of cash to do business, but we had our best two years ever after that. And honestly, at that point, the transition of the technology was really disrupting us. Our our sales were dropping by 30% a year. Our margins were dropping by 50% a year. There's only so much you can cost cut if nobody wants to buy your product. So I went from 55 employees down to about 17 in the course of like six or eight months. And it was really tough. I mean, it was a really trying time. I wasn't making any money for almost a year. And my brother and I were fighting, of course, because, you know, we're grasping at scraps and it was it was difficult. I learned more managing that downsizing over those 12 to 18 months than I did in the previous 20 years of the business because everything was a challenge. There was no easy answer. There was no like bright light bulb going off. Oh, I just do this and everything will be fine. Didn't exist. I'm selling a product nobody wants. I have no money to change directions or pivot and I have to feed our families. So it was it was pretty difficult and I slowly rebuilt the business into a basically a um retail operation and I bought and sold electronic from a retail store. It was going great. And I was starting to make some money again. I could pull money out and it was, it was, it was become it was becoming a thing. But I was still selling a disrupted product of I was a junk hauler. I would buy liquidations and I would resell them for a markup. And I'm like, it's not a scalable business. There's no large payoff in the end. I was the one doing all the sourcing and buying. Sure, I had a team that ran the stores and did the marketing and put it online, but it really depended on my 
ability to find the right merchandise at the right price. And I'm like, I'm never going to grow from this. Mm-hmm. And uh, that sort of got me thinking, I need to find something that is a disruptor rather than a disruptee. I need to find something with a sellable business that isn't reliable just in my ability to lay as many bricks as I can. And I started my journey to look for something new. And at that point, you know, I'll be honest, I was I was almost 50 years old and mid-career and I was just starting to make money again. And and the the idea of changing careers at that age was scary, especially if I've just come through the worst thing in my life. So before I get into that story, I want to stop and give you a chance to uh, redirect me to anything else you want to hear before I no, go down. I mean, before you hop in, before you hop into the, the great success that you've now built, how do you reconcile that in your head as you're going through this middle of your life, right? You've built something successful. You've had a lot of ups and downs and you've made it through some pretty tough times. How do you reconcile that and say, it's time for me to move on? Because I realized in the business I was building, yes, I could probably build up to a, a comfortable income, but there was no legacy. There was no greater wealth beyond what I was selling every day. So mm-hmm. I'll give you an example, a, a SaaS business that has a multiple, a value of many times revenue. This was, this was basically a wholesale retail business that sold secondhand merchandise. All right. It's not scalable because you can never find enough secondhand merchandise. I, I couldn't just call up a factory and say, create more of this merchandise because it's secondhand. Yeah. And I didn't have the capital to franchise it or open multiple locations because of the other scalability issues. So I knew that the growth potential or the value proposition of what I was doing was limited. So I could chug away at this and pay my bills, or I could step back and take risk and go for something that had more of a long-term value proposition. And that's where I was at. And I, I started looking at going to tech groups, you know, the local uh, tech community. I started talking to my friends that were in software and tech business. How can I take my mindset from a product wholesale distribution retail model and change to a completely tech business mid-career at 49 years old with literally no money to invest? How am I going to do this? And that, that was an issue. And then I had, I was approached by one of my longtime connections. And, and again, it goes back to it's not always home what you know, it's who you know. And I just happened to be working on the side, make, you know, networking, you might say. And one of these connections that I had known for years, Joy Genduza Postcard Mania, huge print marketing company here in the Tampa Bay area, $60, $80 million a year. She used to work for me in the video business. She was actually one of our top salespeople. And she had left, she had kids. This is she, she worked there from 90 to 92. And in 1998, after doing some other things, she founded this company, Postcard Mania. And she said, hey, this, is, this was in 2017. She said, hey, I've got this technology. I need somebody who can spin this off into its own company and develop this product and grow a business from it. We're selling it internally, but it's not really... It's got, a, it's got a cap on growth. And she needed an executive or a founder type or an entrepreneurial type that could take a product, develop it, and market it and sell it. And she called me and we talked and we made a deal. And I decided this is what I need to do. This fits along with that track of building a value proposition 
proposition business that has more value than what it sells. Mm-hmm. So, and that's that's how I started on this path in early and mid 2017. So, what tip might you have for someone else who's probably in a similar path that you are on? You know, that that knows that there's this world of software ahead of them, knows there's this world of technology ahead of them, but might just need the extra push, whether they do it to themselves or someone else does it to them, that needs to get them to, hey, I got to recognize I got to move on to the next opportunity. Well, I mean, part of it is an education. And, I, and I'll be honest, I never finished college. I, I actually dropped out of college early to go pursue entrepreneurial adventures. So I never finished my degree. Not that that changed anything, but I realized if I want to go out on the market and be a founder of a tech company, no one's really going to believe in me yet. So I actually spent, as my business was failing, I read something like 48 business books, technology books, and and I knew I had to educate myself in a in a more traditional in a more technology technological industry than wholesale distribution. I had to become technologically savvy. All right. I knew I had some intelligence, but I didn't know enough to communicate with people that would finance or work with me or programmers or engineers. So I did have to do some self-study. That was the first thing I knew I had to do. Other than that, if you have a family, it's harder to take risks as you get older. Okay. You may have kids in college. You may be saddled with educational costs for them. You may have bought a house that houses three or four or five kids. So you have a situation that you can't take risks. That's why you don't find a lot of middle-aged founders, because if they're young, they got nothing to lose. Or if they're late in their career, they've got money to hire and sort of be secure. I was at that place in my late 40s where I was still raising kids and I couldn't afford to rock that boat. So that was part of the fear that I had is if this doesn't work, I'm selling my house, my kids are out of school, I'm back in an apartment at like late 40s, early 50s. This was scary to me, honestly. So I had to overcome that fear. Mm-hmm. And part of it was doing the the networking and doing the self-education for 16 to 18 months during that difficult period. So oh. that was that was what it was for me. Yeah, well, that's that's great, and I I see the the, the logo in the right <laughs> shoulder you got there, direct mail. So let's let's just head right there. So you got this new company, you started off, and and then what? Well, well, so basically, I, it came to me they had done a couple of sales. You know, maybe the company had done a total of twenty or thirty thousand dollars by the time I came. And what it is, just to kind of back up, it's it's a direct mail marketing automation platform. So. It's a SaaS product that we don't print or mail anything. What we do is when people do direct mail, and you know what direct mail is, you see it when you open your mailbox, you see advertisements. We all get several of them a day. What our technology does is it provides digital marketing at the same time the mail's hitting so as to reinforce the number of impressions. So if you mail something in the mailbox, that's one impression. Now, if I can add digitally, eight to 16 impressions during that same mailing window a week or two before in advance, it sort of lifts the likelihood of an engagement from that piece of mail because you keep seeing that same message, whether it's on your screen or it's in your mailbox or on your TV or what have you. So we take that traditional piece of advertising and we add technology to it to improve the response rate. So basically, when I inherited this product or platform 
I took what I knew. We have to have a SaaS model with recurring revenue. I've got to, I've got to be able to improve this technology all the time. You cannot have a static technology. You can't build a SaaS platform and say, it's done. Everybody come buy it. That might work for a year, but the next year a competitor does you one up and guess what? Now you're behind. So it originally had three features. We did Google ads, we did call tracking, and we tracked the mail like you track a package in the post office. And today it has 13 different features. So we're doing uh, programmatic ads that are delivered to people on their phones. We're doing Facebook and Instagram ads. We're doing Google ads. We're doing search. We're doing SMS response tracking. We're, we're doing a whole slew of things for this one piece of mail. And it's it becomes a differentiator to anyone doing advertising mail. So it's it's not cheap, obviously, but the results have been proven now after four or five years. And people that invest in mail marketing, which is not cheap because stamps are now 55 cents, for an extra 10 or 15 cents, we like double the response rate. So it's almost like an insurance policy for people doing direct mail. And we have a beautiful dashboard where they can track the results, they can capture the leads, they can see who called the phone number, they can see who te- who responded via text. So we have this beautiful piece of technology that really gives transparency to the effectiveness of the campaign. We resell through printers or ad agencies. They then sell it to their clients. We assist in those sales. So we have sales support. Like I say, anytime there's new marketing technology on the market, we incorporate it into our platform. So we're never getting stale and we're never getting disrupted, which what, is key. What trends are you guys seeing as it relates to number of impressions that it takes to push forward? Like, is it increasing, decreasing, staying stagnant? Uh, it, it definitely is increasing, mainly because the, the amount of competition in the digital space for eyeballs is increasing. But what we target is for every single piece of mail, our job or what we like to promise is eight to 16 additional impressions per piece of mail. So if you mail 100,000 pieces, we're looking at getting you a million impressions to those same people for that mail piece. So think about it. If you're, if you're a company that's just mailing out a million pieces and then your competitors mailing out the same million pieces, but they have our product attached to it, they're going to win out. So more and more now, people that are just doing traditional direct mail advertising are like, hey guys, I heard about your thing. I need this too. My competitor has. It. So we're becoming that must-have product if you're doing direct mail advertising. So you guys have obviously had a lot of growth since 2017, right? You were doing a lot of the selling initially, I'm sure. And eventually that evolved. <laughs> Actually, when I came into the company, the only thing I did have was a salesperson. So Joy and Postcard Mania had devoted one of their best salespeople to selling this product as a proof of concept, which was important because my first question to Joy was, is anybody buying this? And she's like, yes, we have had so many sales and this girl has been good at selling. So we put her on it. And so the, the, the business model worked, but could it be scale was sort of the next question. She had had a couple of sales. But it was a matter of obviously adding to the sales team, adding to the development team, building a support and delivery team. And, you know, it was basically a company of two people. So how do you scale a company of two people? You know, we're, we're 25 now. So give you an idea. Yeah. And so how did you scale to 25? 
I'll tell you one thing. You know, a lot of a lot of tech companies, because you know, we were bootstrapped. We did not have an unlimited budget or a giant seed round. Joy was supporting this financially for the first two years. And and she was really a profit-driven model. Get profitable, get profitable, get profitable. Okay. So what we did was we concentrated on on building sales even before the product was fully. I guess, catalyzed before it was fully complete. So we were selling before we were delivering. Whereas a lot of times, a lot of tech companies work for years on their perfecting their their delivery model or their product, and then they start selling. We were the opposite. We were selling it as though it was already built. And then we were we were dealing with a lot of backlash and customer service issues. And I, I'll admit, you know, it was not pretty the first 12 to 18 months. But from that, I knew which way to develop the product. So it may not have been the prettiest initial launch or growth, but I was able to not spend resources I didn't have building things that customers wouldn't buy. I would fix things that were the most, the biggest friction points, and I would build the services they asked for most. So it was all customer driven as opposed to, I think I have a great idea. Let's build it and see who buys it, you know? Wait, so you're telling me you should not only know your customers, but you should also listen to your customers and and sell before your product is perfect? Yes, I wow, believe that's, that. That's crazy. <laughs> I actually believe that because, you know, there's going to be problems with that because they're going to they're going to demand something and you're going to say, yes, we can do that, but it's not ready yet. So now you're sort of, you're catching asteroids. Oh, you said it would do this. Okay. And you put your team on that and you fix it. Wait, it's not doing this. Oh, then you put your team on that and you fix it. So there's obviously in a perfect world, if I had $10 million in the bank, I could have scaled a little less frictionly and have these things built in advance, but I didn't. You know what? Sometimes customers just appreciate that, right? That that they're part of the journey. And they're and I was transparent about that. Right. I I said we are a bootstrap company. I apologize. I had dozens of calls with customers. Explaining them the sheer truth. I didn't try to sugarcoat it. I said, we are a new company. We're figuring this out with you. I'll credit your last campaign. Boom. So eventually you guys got big enough where you made the decision to bring on a chief revenue officer, right? Tell me about that journey and and that decision-making process and what's come out of that. So basically this pro salesperson worked themselves up the ranks and she wanted to be the CRO right from the get-go. I was hesitant not because of her inability to sell. She was amazing at sales, but for her ability to manage and build teams. Because a CRO is not just a guy who gets on the phone and closes deals anymore. They're someone that coaches, builds, and trains sales teams, in my eyes. At the same time, they're fully responsible for the revenue of the organization. So it it honestly took me three years to let her actually wear that title. And within six months, she left to be the chief revenue officer of a company that's 10 times our size for twice, two and a half times what she was making. You know what? A lot of times people would be upset by that. I say, good for her. If somebody does well for themselves and their family, I I applaud it. So we started, I knew this was going to happen two months before it did. So we started a search for another CRO. Obviously her, her number two wanted the job. I said, no, we did look outside the pricing was ridiculous. I, I talked to a few people, had a couple interviews, and I was just like not convinced that there was going to be a smooth transition. I was going to spend a lot of money and have a lot of headache. 
So I figured I'm not going to have one. I'm, I will do it. I will start mentoring the number two and I'll start doing the same thing I did with my first CRO and start building the second one. Right. So here we are about a year and two months and she just got the position and she was now promoted to that same role. But the numbers have not gone down. They've continued to go up. It was a slower process. There was no outside person brought in that would create a political estrangement within the company. And it's worked out great. I mean, I had people say, well, you know, if you brought in a big gun from outside, you could probably grow faster. That may be true. I, I don't know. This has worked. Um, we have been growing at 30% a year without a clip. I don't think our growth is held back by the wrong people as much as we're self-funded and we're bootstrapped and we grow out of our cash flow. Yeah. So, and kudos, it's work. Kudos to doing that. I mean, sometimes growing smart is better than growing fast, yeah. right? I mean, you, uh, you, you, you're from Tampa. I don't know. You've probably heard of that company Fast yeah. that was in Tampa. Grew unbelievably. The real growing fast. Yeah. <laughs> never, never made a penny, lost hundreds of millions, and then like, out of the blue, their funding dried up and they were gone like overnight, you know, four or 500 staff. It was, it was a, it was a mess. Total that mess. happens all the time. Yeah. So, so what's in front of you guys now? Like what's, what's, what's next for direct mail? So basically we're going to move more into the data space. Marketing obviously has gone digital, but the next sort of buzz on it is the hyper-personalization, meaning you're targeting the exact person with the exact need, and you've matched those up now in some cases with the buzzword AI. So I have marketing data on almost a billion pieces of mail, all right? I know what people have clicked on. I know who's been targeted. I know where they go. I know what they buy. This is my own data I've accumulated over the last four years. So we're taking this massive data warehouse and we're building a what's called propensity or predictive model. So based on a certain type of ad, whether it's colors used or creative or imagery or fonts or call to action or the size of the phone number or the size of the URL, and we're combining that with different demographics, I can predict based on industry. So nonprofit, education, home services, real estate, financial. I can predict based on many different touch points what people are likely to react to. So I'm going to take all of this data that I've been collecting for four years and build a propensity model that tells an advertiser, hey, if you're trying to, if you're, if it's a financial services ad, this is what has gotten a higher engagement rate if you use this color or this font and you target this age group. Versus another age group. So no one's ever done this for direct mail. I know Facebook and Google sort of lead to this in an, in an indirect way, but no one has done this with, the, with direct mail. I am probably the best suited in the United States with the biggest cross-section of direct mail campaigns to be able to provide this type of intuitive or predictive modeling. So we're going to work on building that over the next 18 months, incorporate it into our campaigns. Uh, with our clients, see if it works. And if it does, we're going to export this, well, we're going to sell this technology to other 
mailers, ad agencies, et cetera, who are involved in direct mail. That's incredible. Well, if you guys are looking to scale any of that in a non-dilutive way with some financing, I know a few data provider or data backed financing really? that's non-dilutive out there. So that, that um, some really cool things out there from alternative. Yeah. I have gotten an education on artificial intelligence engineers and programmers. Yeah. And their hourly rate is significantly higher than traditional engineers. Just a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just a little bit. All right. So at the end of each of these episodes, I like to kind of pull things together and talk about a little bit about like your growth and your company's growth and what I call the founder five. Sure. So the first question is just like most things should be about metrics is all about metrics. So what is the top metric or KPI that you are relentlessly focused on? Well, obviously, because we are bootstrapped and we, we rely on cash, we, we look at revenue. All right. That's probably the number one, regardless of anything else, followed closely by new customers. Because obviously, if you're static and not bringing on new business, I don't care how good your product or service is, you will shrink mm-hmm. eventually. So any, any new business, any, any revenue from new companies, those are the things that are the biggest secondary indicator, followed closely by churn rate. If you know, a lot of our business is SaaS model, And if we're growing or we're stagnant or we're losing licensees, that's a concern to me. So those are the top three. Uh, I follow that by the the expense side. I I closely watch payroll and other expenses. If we, we have something called a financial plan, number one, which is the fixed cost to open the doors every month. You know, that's headcount, salary, payroll. Anything that doesn't change based on revenue. Obviously, commissions fluctuate with revenue, but your rent is the same, your your fixed payroll's the same, your your licenses that you buy of other people's software. So if that number vacillates significantly higher, I get concerned. Mm-hmm. So coming outside to the more qualitative side, what's a top tip that you have for growth stage founders like yourself? You know, it, I would have to separate it into two things because if companies that are, are running based on being funded by investors, it would be different than companies that are bootstrapped and require their own cash flow to grow. Obviously, if you're funded, I would be, if I'm an investor, I want to see growth in terms of, of customer base and revenue. If I'm self-funded, then, you know, bottom line is is key. I mean, if you're if you're not watching your bottom line and you're self-funded, well, then you got nowhere to get the money if, if you're going backwards every month. So it differs based on where the money's coming from. At this yeah. point, we've been profitable for almost three years and we've been self-funded. So my eyes are on profit as much as they are on growth at this point. Yeah, totally. What is a top book or podcast or some medium that's helped you grow a lot as a founder? I have to say the one I'm most interested in, at least for the last year, is the All In podcast with the, you've seen that one? Yeah. I, I love it. I listen to it every week. It comes out on Saturday or Friday. I listen to it in the gym on Saturday morning. And I, I think those guys are brilliant. They're they're very logical. They explain their things. And it helps me understand the models and the exit strategies and the valuations of tech businesses. So that's my number one. You'll have to add the dirt to it now, though. Of course, of course. 
All right. If you were to be played by an actor in a movie, who would that actor be? It's funny. People say I I look like Jerry Seinfeld. Okay. But I don't know that he would play me in an actor because I'm not funny. So <laughs> I, make I, me laugh. I don't. What? <laughs> I said, you make me laugh. Okay. Well, I don't make many other people laugh. So <laughs> I, I don't, I don't know. Other people say I look like Rob Schneider. Again, another comedian, but I'm not funny. So I'm trying to think who who's one of my favorite guys. I mean, you know, uh, what's his name? Vani Rabisi. I like him. He's 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 a little couple of years younger than me, but he was in Avatar and and he okay. hasn't been doing much lately. But yeah. Yeah, nice, nice, awesome. So uh all right, last one here. When you've accomplished everything you set out to do, when you look back and write your autobiography that I'm sure everyone listening is gonna read, what's gonna be the title of it? I'm actually already writing it. <laughs> no, to, to be honest, over the last like seven or eight years, I've started creating this outline of a, of, and I played with the title, but basically I never finished college. I never went to business school. It's, it's was tentatively called a business book for the everyday guy who didn't go to college. And it was just about some key factors that I found and I've used over the years to sort of improve myself when things weren't going right. Because if you're an entrepreneur, it ain't always going to go right. All right. You have to be resilient, things like that. And things to look for in terms of finding that opportunity that's going to build a business that's more value than your valuable than your own personal labors. You know, that's awesome, man. Thanks yeah. for, thanks for all the knowledge, Brad, today. And I always like to close things off by giving back to you since you've been so giving today. What can those listening do for you? Well, if if anybody's involved in any direct mail advertising or ever wanted to try it, I wouldn't try it without our product, all right? So if you want to try some direct mail advertising, hit me up, uh, dm20.com, dm20.com, just four letters, .com. And uh, we can guide you to the right printer, the right creative, and we can give you all the metrics and digital advertising overlay that you need to make sure it's a successful campaign nice man well thanks again for joining us and keep killing it i'm gonna man i'm gonna do it as much as i can see ya all right if you loved today's episode of the dirt make sure you rate it on your favorite platform and if you really liked us go ahead and leave us an honest review thanks again for tuning in to the dirt